Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West, and whether you are an experienced or aspiring ocean swimmer, if you are in Australia or New Zealand, you will have visited Oceanswims.com. Oceanswims.com handles the entries for the majority of organised swims in this part of the world, as well as being the home to commentary, photos, witty banter, results, and competitions. Paul Ellicamp and Sue Ann Hunt are the ocean swimming doyernes who run Oceanswims.com and Ocean Swim Safaris. And we talked recently, rather pleasantly, over tea and macaroons about all things ocean swimming, including how the sport has changed over the last 20 years, technology changes, some of the characters of the sport, swimming around the world, and Paul's starring role, with a former Prime Minister no less, in the classic Australian TV soap, Our Country Practice. I started by asking Paul where Oceanswims.com came from. Well, I had an idea in in the 90s when I started um, taking part in ocean swimming events. I was living on the south side out in the, the Sutherland Shire on the southern perimeter of Sydney. And I used to do Shark Island and I knew about the Coal Classic and I knew there are other swims on, mainly on the north side of Sydney, but there was nowhere to find out about them. And so I had the idea that what we needed, at the time it was the dot-com boom, and I, I thought what we needed was a website uh, you know, that was, that was easily accessible and uh, uh, if only to run simply a list of events, a calendar if you like. So this was the 90s? 90s, yeah, 97, 98. 98, no, 98, 99, because Oceanswims.com launched at Christmas 99. And there were probably three or four months leading up to it that I was sort of turning the idea over. And a friend of mine in Perth who'd, who'd built a couple of websites before, he built the thing for me. And we launched, as I say, just before Christmas 1999. And, uh, and the original idea was simply to run a calendar of events so people could see what was on and, uh, and a bit of information about how they go about entering. Um, so I started that. And, uh, and uh, my background being in journalism, I started doing reports as well. And, uh, and uh, I used to quite enjoy doing that because, you know, all journos need an outlet and that, was my, that became my outlet. And what I found was um, uh, we started building up a community uh, of people. People started coming to the site to find out what was on. I was amazed at the time that to find that um, as well as Shark Island and the Coal and the Big Swim, which I'd heard about, Palm to Whale, that there are actually 17 events in New South Wales. Imagine that, 17 events. Well, now we've got more like 100 and, uh, and uh, you know, there were a couple of hundred all around Australia. But I was amazed to find how much more was going on than I'd suspected. And there's been a, um, a, uh, uh, an exponential growth um, over the years since then. Um, and uh, and uh, I like to think that Oceanswims.com has been at the centre of that and has been the catalyst for it because, because as I say, it's, it's built a community around it, a community of, you know, pretty good people by and large too. So in the late 90s, if you were interested in ocean swimming, how did you find out about what, how did you find out what was on before? Uh, Basically incident? word of mouth. And, and quite often you'd go to an event and, uh, and uh, you'd come back to your car afterwards and found that someone had been around with a paper flyer and stuck it under your windscreen, yep. windscreen wiper. That was the basic way. I mean, the coal classic people knew about it because by that stage the coal had been going since the early 80s. And the big swim, Palm to Whale, though, similarly, that had been going for quite a while as well. Um, Shark Island was newer, but it had been going for a few years. 
uh, but there were hardly any other swims on at that... As I say, there were 17 in New South Wales, uh, mainly on the north side. Um, There was one swim before Christmas of note, and that was Bilgola. Um, and uh, and uh, there were a couple of swims in January. Um, a lot of them were, were, were very, very new at that point. Um, I remember vividly the day Coogee started, had its first outing, um, and it was two, 2001, I think it was. That no, two, Yeah, 2001. Yeah. And, uh, and the first outing they had, they had a run swim as well as the swim, um, and there was a bit of a wind blowing and they had to run it inside the island of Coogee. In fact, I think their plans in the first place were never to go around the island anyway. They weren't game. Yeah. Um, but of course, if you have a swim at Coogee, you've got to go around the island. Yeah, for sure. It's one of the swims to do, the courses to do. I remember vividly the first time Bronte ran. And I remember the, uh, the president of Bronte at the time, Graham Ford, who's now the president of World Surf Lifesaving, rang me one night and said, we're going to have a swim at Bronte. Bronte was, the, was my old surf club, and uh, it was the site of my first ocean swim. Of course, in the old days, the, the, there used to be something called the Bronte Biathlon, which involved a swim from Bronte over to Mackenzie's and back, and then a run up to up Military Road to Dover Heights and back. And, uh, and uh, that was run by one of the, a long-time Bronte member called John McGuire, and when John ran out of puff, you know, the, the event fell over. So I remember back then it was my first ocean swim, and then Graham called me in probably 2001, maybe 2002, um, and said that we're going to run a swim at Bronte. And I said, what's your course? He said, I would go over to Mackenzie's and back, which was the course of the original Bronte Biathlon. I said, mate, you've got to go around the point. I mean, you cannot, just like Coogee, you cannot have a swim unless it's around Wedding Cake. At Bronte, you cannot have a swim unless you go around, around Mackenzie's Point. That is the natural, obvious course. Anyway, they agreed to do that. And I was watching the, uh, the number of times that people were downloading the entry form from oceanswims.com. And, you know, it was, uh, got up to something like four or 500 times, maybe more. And I said, mate, you're going to have over 800 swimmers. And they ended up with 850 at their first outing because it's a natural course, yep. a natural journey swim. So it was pretty exciting in those days. There were a lot of new swims starting up. And it was great to see a new swim start, great to see the... The organisers um, have a go at running swims, you know, always a bit of a risk for them, especially a surf club, because they don't have a lot of resources, and great to see it succeed. But, you know, swims that they are a good course, that are a natural course, you know, will always succeed, providing they're, they're well run. So that Bondi to Bronte is sponsored by Macquarie Bank now. It is now, what, yeah. What yeah. were they like back then, you know, skin of the teeth? Well, all surf clubs clubs run things basically skin of the teeth because most surf clubs don't have a lot of resources to play with. And this is one of the beauties of the sport, that while enjoying their sport, I think ocean swimmers like the idea that they're supporting a good cause, which is surf life saving. Because as we all know, surf surf clubs, you know, they they live from hand to mouth. Um, uh, They've got bigger budgets nowadays than they had even 20 years ago. Um, but um, but uh, um, they're always on the lookout for money. They've always got to pay for their for the equipment and just to run the club and pay for training and so on and so forth. Up upkeep at the clubhouse and everything doesn't come easy to a lot of them. Queensland it's different because the clubs up there are licensed and uh, they have poker machines and they have restaurants and bars and so that's one of the reasons why there aren't more swims in Queensland because the surf clubs don't really need they them. They don't need them. They don't need them. Yeah, right. I didn't know that. And that's why most of the swims in Queensland are run by private organisers. Okay. So how did you come to ocean swimming back in the day? Well, I'd grown up on the beach and I'd grown up in surf life saving in Newcastle. My, my club was Swansea Caves. Um, we lived at Caves Beach. 
and uh, our house was on the hill above the beach, about, about 200 metres from the beach, and so I'd be down there every morning before school and every afternoon after school, and my whole father's family were all tied up in surf clubs up there, and it was quite a well-known name around, around uh, surf life-saving. Not through anything I did, but <laughs> for truth, by virtue of, uh, of the efforts of a couple of, my, couple of my uncles particularly, and later on my dad and another uncle. And so I was used to hanging around in that environment, and um, and so uh, I used to row surfboats. I lived in Canberra for a while, uh, where I was working, and down there it's not easy to row surfboats. I turned up to train train in a surfboat with a local surf club one day on Lake Burley Griffin, and found that they jumped in the boat. One of them was a builder's labourer, but didn't bother changing out of his builder's labourer's gear right. to row. So I, this is not as serious as I'm used to. Yeah. So you fall out of it, you see. And, I, I don't uh, think I'd want to fall into Lake Burley Griffin. Uh, I've swum in Lake Burley Griffin. It took two or three weeks to get the taste out of my mouth. <laughs> I did a triathlon in Lake Burley Griffin. And uh, I think it was the first triathlon run in Canberra. But, um, but anyway, it, it took a while to get the taste of the water out of my mouth. It's not pleasant. But, um, but, uh, and the other thing is fresh water as well. And blokes don't like fresh water because in fresh water we swim vertically. Mm. But anyway, um, so I'd, I'd always been around beaches, and and, uh, and if you can't do surf boats, we, the thing about surf boats is you're relying on other people to turn up the training. And so many times, one person doesn't turn up, and the whole training is, is ruined. So if you can't do something like that, you look for things where you're not relying on other people. One of those is swimming. And so I started uh, I started doing some swimming, and when I moved back to Canberra in 1980, 1984, uh, I had some friends who were swimming every morning, and I got into the habit of doing the morning swims, and that's how I started swimming. And so coming back to Sydney, the ocean swimming is a natural extension of that combined with, with the background I had on the beach. I was a surfer as well in my young days, and I was one of the few people on the beach who, who uh, actually crossed over between surf life-saving and board riding, because in yeah. those days the boardies and the clubbies hated each other. Okay. What, what were the swims like? I mean, were they, these days they're pretty well patrolled. There's, there's IRBs around everywhere and guys on jet skis. Was it like that back Oh, they always any club who who ran a swim would have to provide good good uh, uh, course course management, um, course patrols, and they were always very professional like that. And that's the great beauty of surf clubs running swims as well. Of course, that they're full of surf clubs are full of people who uh, who are trained in in water safety and in, in rescuing people, and so they're always pretty well maintained. Mind you, on the odd occasion this happens, I raise my eyebrows when I see that a lot of the word water safety are barely out of nippers. Mm. Um, and the problem with that is, is not that there, there aren't enough people on, on the water, it's just that, uh, that uh, people patrolling courses who are that young often find it difficult to, uh, to challenge uh, older people who are swimming, who maybe have gone, gone off course yeah. or who are cutting boys. Um, and even, even you know, if they have to pull someone out of the water, you know, someone who's barely out of nippers is not able easily to pull, say, a grown-up especially an overweight one, out of the water. Yeah, yeah. So you raise your eyebrows sometimes. There, there does seem at times to be a bit, a bit of an uh, over-reliance on, uh, on water safety staff who are a little bit young. Have you seen any great changes, apart from proliferation of events? Are they run differently? There's electronic timing now, but... Well, yes, electronic timing, goodness me. Um, swimmers demand electronic timing, and I keep telling organising clubs that really it's no panacea. I mean, there are just as many issues with electronic timing as there would be with any other timing system. And indeed, the most reliable and flexible timing system is the old post-it note system, which every club used in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, and that simply involves, involves half a dozen staff on the beach on the finish line. All you've got to do is organise a couple of the staff members, writing the, the, the swimmer numbers and the, and the times on a, piece of, on a post-it note, 
and this woman then hands that in to someone sitting with a laptop under a tent. But still, it is the most reliable, most flexible, because you, you can even negotiate your finish time, can't you? Yeah, you could, yeah, you could. <laughs> but um, there, is, there are an awful lot of issues with electronic timing, and principal amongst them is the cost. Mm. Um, I haven't checked prices in the last year or two, but, but the, the, the basic cost of electronic timing was $3,000 or so. Right. For up to 1,000 swimmers. Well, most clubs can't afford that. And so I've spent a bit of time over the last few years as well uncovering um, alternatives to that. Um, uh, one of the great things about the web is there are a couple of apps you can download now. They cost about $40. Put them in your phone um, or your iPad, and you can even have a couple of iPhones and iPads if they're logged into the same account. And, uh, and uh, they operate with Excel from a laptop. And uh, once you've got the, the Excel database in the phone or the, the iPad, you simply press a button as they cross the line and, uh, and you, bingo, you've got electronic timing. It only costs $40 or so. Yeah, yep. that's, the way, that's the way clubs want electronic timing. That's the way a lot of these small swims should go. But alternatively, as, as I say, just organise a couple of staff members and post it. That costs nothing. Have you ever thought of running your own swim? Uh, a couple of times that's been put to me, um, but I've never seriously considered it. Um, I don't think my forte is to cover the sort of detail that swim organisers need to cover. And, I, and I've got to say, I'm in awe of some of the organisers, especially the big events, mm. having some insight into the detail they have to cover and the responsibilities they have. I'm in awe of the fact that they, they get across all this stuff. But it also is one of the reasons why swims sometimes fall over. Um, surf clubs... Um, uh, tend to rely on too few people. Um, they might have quite a few members, but in terms of people who really, really do the grunt work, there are too few people doing it, and that's why organisers burn out. And swims sometimes fall over when an organiser burns out, and there's no one prepared or capable to, to uh, no one prepared to put their hand up to replace them, or capable of doing it properly. Yep. It's always sad to see a swim fall over, you know, but that's why they do. Yeah. This year we had a lot of swims cancelled felt like swim organisers were being a bit conservative. Is that something you think's happening no, well, with, there's, there with are the couple, growth of the sport? Yeah, I mean, there was no proper swim run on Bondi this season at all. No, there um, wasn't. Because North Bondi's first iteration was truncated from two events to one. And Bondi, of course, and their second, the second iteration was cancelled completely. And Bondi, of course, was postponed once and then cancelled. And, uh, and uh, you know, you could take the view that, that they're being too conservative. And, of course, if you turn up at the beach on swim day after there's been a cancellation the day before and it's looking like Lake Bondi, as it was a couple of weeks ago, it's easy to say they're too conservative. But at the same time, organisers organizers have got to bear in mind a number of things, and good organisers do. One of the things they've got to bear in mind is what are the conditions likely to be on swim day? Another is... Another is... Um, uh, another is... Should I give plenty of warning to swimmers that the swim may not be held? Um, should I actually make a decision early? If we're pretty pretty clear that the conditions are going to be difficult on swim day, I probably have a, uh, when I say I, I mean I'm pretending I'm an organiser, have an obligation to swimmers to make it, make the call early so they don't put their money in. Yep. Um, situations like this, I'll often you know, close off entries until they make their minds up, um, until organisers make their minds up. and. Um, and, uh, but there are all these balancing concerns they have, you know, so it's easy to say, and a little bit glib I have to say to say some organisers are a bit conservative, it's easy to say that on the day when the conditions turn out to be reasonably easy, but the day before, when you're, you're looking at forecasts and you're also getting advice from the beach inspectors, um, it's a different situation and they've got mm. a lot of things to take into account. I actually feel for organisers, if a swimmer's called off, 
the ones who feel it most are the organisers. Because they're the ones who've done all the work. Oh, and they lose. I mean, it's easy for swimmers. They can go off and swim somewhere else, but the organisers can't. And presumably they lose money. They do. They do. They've still got to buy, pay for the barbie and all this sort of stuff. Yep. You know, and that's one of the reasons why some swims will go ahead in conditions, conversely, con- conditions that, that, that are quite, quite uh, dubious. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, the last swim in Sydney that had, electronic, uh, that had entries online, not electronic timing, but that had entries online, there was the thunderstorm on swim day, but because they had no entries online, they had no revenue. And, um, and, right. uh, and on the day of the swim, there were thunderstorms. And uh, they were faced with the situation. They'd paid all the costs of, of, of um, organising the swim. Uh, they had no revenue. And there were thunderstorms around. So what did they, what did they do? They still ran the they swim. They still ran it, right? They still ran the swim. In the end, it went off all right, you know. But if you talk about risk management, if you talk about trying to forecast how conditions are going to be, you've got to wonder why they did that. But they had no revenue. Yeah. Because swims are actually quite expensive to run. And so if a surf club has gone to that expense and they face the prospect of having no revenue coming in to cover it, well... It changes the equation. Yeah, especially if they're charities. Oh, they are charities. That's right. As we said before, they are charities. And A, they don't have much money, but B, they cannot afford to waste what they've got. Yeah. Where do you think it's going to go? There's more longer swims now, I've noticed. Um, it's interesting because we, we see this in New South Wales, for example, and there is a different trend in, in, in Victoria. Uh, well, actually, it's not that much of a different trend in Victoria because traditionally in Victoria, the swims were shorter. They were all around 1, 1.2 kilometres. Is that because it's in cold? New South Wales, <laughs> I don't know whether it's because it's cold or not, but that's that's what they've been. Uh, but down there, they, most of them wear wetsuits anyway, of course, you know, so the issue of cold is probably evened out. But in New South Wales, the, the, the uh, typical swim was two kilometres. And so we've already been through a phase in New South Wales where, where we've added short swims to the long swim, the longer swims. Um, and in Victoria, they've started adding longer swims to the short swims. Um, but sure, as you say, quite correctly, there is a bit of a trend now towards even longer swims in New South Wales. There's been a bit of a proliferation of five kilometre swims. Yep. There are a couple of those in Victoria, or longer swims in Victoria now as well, even longer swims. But in New South Wales, there are five or six swims now of, of longer distances. There are actually a couple more than that too, but some of them, like, like Foster, for example, they make out their 3.8. Knowing full well, it's more like 4.2. Right. But they don't want to scare people off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, there is, a tradi- there is a bit of a push, a trend that way. The other trend, the other trend is that the real growth in the sport, um, I mean, the, the people who, who are doing those 5K swims are established swimmers. The real growth in the sport is at the shorter distance end, um, and it's also at the, at the at the in the area of um, of say uh, mothers coming mm-hmm. into the sport, newbie swimmers. When I say newbie swimmers, swimmers with virtually no experience whatsoever. A whole lot of us people have been doing it for years. We grew up on beaches and we grew up in surf clubs, and we're quite comfortable in pretty well any surf conditions. But a lot of the new swimmers aren't, and yep. it's interesting to see to see how how many are really quite uncomfortable. Um, when conditions become difficult. I remember at North Stain in 2002, I remember, uh, remember quite vividly, there was about a two metre swell running. It was, it was autumn. It was the most beautiful, beautiful conditions for anyone who, who doesn't mind a wave. Because with the offshore breeze blowing, clear sky, clear water, two metre swell, about half a tide, it was absolutely beautiful at North Stain, absolutely glorious. The gun goes, and about two thirds of the field either didn't get out, didn't try to get out, and stood around on the bank chatting. 
Yeah, right, that's when yeah. I realised how few people could really handle conditions. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's easy for us who've been doing it all our lives to say, oh, well, nothing wrong with that. And we go back to the conservative conservative yep. uh, forecasts of some swim organisers, you know. But most people cannot handle difficult conditions. Mind you, if they're forced to go out in them, they do, and very few people end up having problems, but they're not comfortable. Yeah, well, I mean, it's if you're not used to it, getting out through this well is tough. That's right, yeah. that's right. That's another thing that amazes me about some organisers as well, though. When you talk about minimum ages and so on, um, uh, they'll base their minimum age on on, uh, on uh, what conditions they're going to be like, um, uh, or rather on how long the swim is, rather rather than what conditions are going to be like. But but uh, and there'll be a lower minimum age for the one k than there will be for the say say the two or the two and a half k's, and yet the difficulty in that swim isn't so much the distance for a lot of these people; it's getting out and no, it's getting the out, surf. Yeah. And so you face that whatever the distance. I've noticed. So it's an interesting thing. So. I enter a new age group in a couple of weeks. Like oh, yeah. I'm going to be hitting the 40s. Yep. And recently I've been looking at my results. They're, they're okay for the 30s. Put them into the 40s, sometimes even the 50s. I'm getting flogged. That's one what, of the interesting what things. What is about, it? What's happening? Well, well, nothing's happening. I mean, you're just welcome to the world, you know. I mean, <laughs> and welcome to ocean swimming. I did a, a demographic analysis of the, of the online entry database a number of years ago now, and I found out a few interesting things. One was that ocean swimming is basically two-thirds male, one-third female, Despite all the growth over the years, it is still basically two-thirds male, one-third one, one female. But if you separate the short swims from the longer swims, it's overwhelmingly, uh, not overwhelmingly, but it's much more even male-female, and quite often it's actually more female than male. Longer swims, con converse, more male than female. But um, the other, one of the other things I discovered when I did this demographic analysis was, was that the, the, uh, the sport is really heavily focused on swimmers' age from about 40 through to about 65, 70. Mm. And they're all, they're all the, old, the, old, uh, the old beach crowd who've been doing it all their lives. You know? yeah. And, and uh, there was a day at North Bondi, for example, when there was a, there was a breeze blowing and a bit of a short, sharp chop, and, uh, and they called the swim off. And there was a, a fellow in his, in his 50s or 60s who went home, and I think he was a judge, and he rang the Herald and complained about North Bondi. Next thing you know, the next morning, he and his partner are on the front page of the Herald complaining about <laughs> North Bondi. And the really weird thing about that day was because conditions were judged by the, by the, the water safety people at North Bondi to be difficult, they, cancelled the, they didn't cancel the swim, except they cancelled it for the over 50s. Ah. And yet the over 50s are the ones who have been doing it all their lives. Yeah, right. Okay. And they are the ones who are probably most competent. Yeah. But when you say you find you're getting flogged in the 40s, you know, the, the bulk of the sport is 40s and 50s. Yeah. And even now 60s. John Curry, for example, tells a story about when he started. Uh, he, used to be at, he used to check in at this table and he'd point to the teenage table. Yeah. Now he's checking in at the 70 pluses. Yeah. yeah. He's gone all the way through. But, you know, the vast majority are in those age groups. That swim the other weekend, I did the curl curl to freshwater. I think interesting demographics. The first four places were female. The rest of the top ten I were plus yeah. fifty blokes. Yep, yep. I noticed that. It yeah. was it was very it was quite. And one different. of them one of them was John Demestra, no doubt. Oh, he's crazy good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The amazing thing about Demestra, um, I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, when the old Sydney Harbour swim used to run in early March, a couple of times they ran a celebrity race from Fort Denison into Manawar Steps. And on two of those occasions, the organiser, Adam Wilson, got me to go in, about, in a boat and follow them in. And, and you know, I had a microphone and I was supposed to call the race, as it were. Yep. A little bit like Des Hoisted yep. or, or, uh, or uh, one of those, one of those, those ilk. 
And, uh, and this particular day, Sue Ann was, was actually in the celebrity race this day as well. Uh, Mr Sparkle sitting here next to me. And, uh, and <laughs> um, I'm in the midst of uh, celebrity here. I didn't realise. Well, one celebrity, <laughs> Sue Ann. <laughs> anyway, um, the boat followed the leaders in, and all the way in from Fort Denison to Man of War Steps, uh, the boat sat next to a leading trio of John Demestra, who is a stripper of a lad, baby-faced, um, never underestimate him. Um, Graham Brewer, who's about twice the size of Demestra, um, a couple of years older than Demestra as well, but a huge hulk of a bloke. He could easy, easy appear in a Hulk Hogan movie. Yeah. And, uh, and they were shoulder to shoulder all the way in. But, but whereas Brewer has this long, loping, strong stroke, Demestra's stroke rate was about double. And so he's going like a thrasher, like a windmill, next to Brewer with his long lope and so on. And sitting on their feet was Don Boland, I've got to say, who just drafted all the way in, had the easiest run because he was yeah. behind both of them. But anyway, you've got Demestra there with a stroke rate twice Brewers. Who do you think won? Oh, well, I think, I think you're going to say Demestra then, eh? Hey? Well, well, yeah, you guess right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Demestra won. I mean, he was only half a shoulder ahead of Brewer when they climbed out, and he probably got out more, more nimbly. Yep. Well, quicker because he, he is more nimble on his feet because he's not carrying as much weight as Brewer. Brewer's yep. not, when I say he's carrying weight, he's not fat. He's just big and strong yep. and solid. And so it'd be easier for Demestra to hop out and run up the to steps up the first stairs, and yeah. win, you know. But it was a phenomenal race. It was a great exercise in, it's not your body shape and it's not necessarily your technique, but there are all sorts of things come together in yeah. it. It's, and, and it'd be a fallacy to say, for example, to be a good ocean swimmer, you've got to swim long, strong, hard strokes. There's a time and a place for that, but it's not necessarily the determinant of whether you're going to win or yeah. be a good swimmer. I, I do like that, and I'm, you know, I'm very much middle of the pack, and but and also don't carry a lot of muscle or anything on me really. But yeah, I quite like beating the triathletes over the line. But usually there's, you know, some big guy who's beating me. So, you know, well, but but probably that big fat guy has been taught properly as a kid. Oh, and, and they, so his techniques there. And they're strong. And they're strong. That's yeah. right. Uh, like a water, he's probably a water poloist. Yeah, right. Yeah. Something like that. A lot of water polo players here, and a lot of the outstanding swimmers, the strong swimmers, are ex-water polo players. Yeah. And they've been taught there not only to be aggressive, I think, but also they're just strong in the shoulders. You mentioned drafting. I know you have strong opinions on drafting. Essentially should I, should draft, I give you the platform? Well, essentially, drafting is cheating um, because you're using someone else's effort to get get through the water. Now, I know at, at the at the uh, the upper echelons of, of ocean swimming, or uh, more, not so much ocean swimming, but open water swimming. There's a difference between the two. I'm talking now about FINA events, for example. Drafting is quite acceptable. Now, at that level. What they would do is they'll draft and they'll take turns in drafting and they'll take turns in leading, just as the cyclists like in, the in Tour the, de France or something. Tour de France or someone like that does. They take turns. Um, now, if they do take turns, that's fine, you know, because that's part of what they do in those, you know, 25k races, 10k races, and so on. But at our level, at our level, if you draft on someone, you hear so many stories about people having someone on their feet for the entire race, and then right at the very end, they pull out and overtake them because they're still fresh. Mm. Now, at our level, drafting is cheating. Now, uh, now, sometimes you cannot avoid it because a lot of the time we're swimming in a pack and you're going to find yourself behind someone's feet. And so you can't, it can't help it to some extent. What you can help is doing it strategically or tactically throughout the entire race. What, you also can't, what we also can help 
is touching someone's feet, touching their body, and imposing on their on their person, their personal space that way. Yep. And in that sense, drafting is cheating, and it's one. I think it's one of the most disgusting and disgraceful things that an ocean swimmer can do if it's done deliberately. Do we see it much? Is it? Well, is we it don't common? see it much. I'm never up the front, so I don't know. But no, uh, well, it's not. You don't have to be up the front. You know, you might just be at the front of an age group, or a wave. Yeah. You know, but um, but uh, um, you don't see it because you're in the water and you can't see what else is going on in the field. Yeah. In the pack, you know, but it, happen, it happens quite a bit, and you you quite often hear good swimmers. When I say good swimmers, swimmers at the front of the field get out and, and they'll talk about how they successfully drafted on someone throughout throughout the way a, yeah. a race. I mean, Swan's had people draft on her all the way through, and, and she's become very very. I shouldn't be speaking for you, but she's become very adept at switching position and hiding behind other swimmers to stop people drafting on her. Right, but she's a much better swimmer than I am. You see, so she's at she's at that level. Have you ever experienced, you know, uh, fists around the boys and oh, yeah, and that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, for a long time, you know, Shark Island was one of my first swims, and for a long time, the Shark Island people haven't spoken to me. Um, and and I think one of the reasons for that is that uh, the last time I did Shark Island at Cronulla, back in two thousand and two, I wrote a report afterwards in which I commented, amongst other things, that that it was the most violent swim I've ever done. Wow, and I think I, I think I said the the words were almost almost exactly this that the Cronulla Club runs a very good event, and they, as I understand it, they still do run a very very good event. For example, Cronulla was the first organizer of an ocean swim in Sydney that had their own boys. Now they weren't big boys, but they were very colourful and very easily seen. But that's how professionally they did it. You know, they've always run a very very good event logistically, but it is also a violent swim. And it's one of those, it's a regional swim, and there are a lot of people who do that swim, as, as with a lot of regional swims, uh, who probably only swim once a year. And I think they treat it like the Sunday surf race. So it's a bit of a lark to get a bit boisterous. Right. And, uh, and, occasionally, and, and you do often get, get a fist in the face or a fist in the back or a hand pulling your cozies down or, or even as Suanne's experienced a number of times, hands ripping, ripping timing chips off. Now, I'm not saying that all happens at Cronulla, but I'll just say that's an example. You can get fist you can get very very boisterous and of course the crush on the boy you know often does yeah. get quite quite inadvertently physical not intentionally yeah i mean that does happen you know everybody comes from everywhere and well at times like that you can't be a shrinking violet you see yeah. if you want to get around the boy you know you, you you've got to you know be prepared to handle all that and, and take a few knocks but that's all part of the fun yeah. but for that reason alone you know when i when i swim in an event you know i'll generally hang out but it's not just because i can't get my directions right Partly that, but <laughs> it seems kind of anathema to what I see ocean swimming as. I get, but I guess I'm back in the pack and just do it for fun. But yeah, it seems. Well, no, 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 no. You don't have to be terribly competitive to to uh, be concerned with those with those issues. You know, I mean, I'm, I mean, Sue Ann is a racer, and other people who are racers, you know, they get very. You know, they notice these things perhaps more. Yeah. But those of us a little bit farther back in the field, um, I'm not a born racer, and uh, and I wasn't taught properly so much as a kid. I was taught to swim, but I was never taught technique properly. Um, not like some others. And you can always tell those who had been because their their styles stay with them all their lives, no matter mm. how fat they are, how old they are. Yeah. But um, but uh, even back in the pack, there you, you you're concerned about those things. Of course, back in the pack, you probably there are probably more of you going around the boy at the one time. Oh, there, there is be, yeah. there is at the, up the front. Yeah. So it's, you don't have to be a fast swimmer to be concerned with these sorts of issues. And where I think you've described on the website 
different groups of ocean swimmers. We've kind of talked about the weekend warriors, mm. but then there are those that um, swim in the English Channel, mm. for instance. Do you have there, much involvement in that part of the sport? Not a huge amount, because I'm, I'm not done. I mean, I mean, Sue Ann and I have been part of teams that have done South Head a couple of times, and Sue Ann has, has, uh, has uh, been part of teams that have done Rottnest four times now, four times, five times. Two duos. Two duos and two, two quads. Teams. Yeah, two <clears throat> teams of quad teams. I'd love to do it. Sharks, but, you know. <laughs> oh, listen, there are, shark, there are shark sightings there every year, you know, but I mean, it's the other interesting thing. People always say to you when they find out you're an ocean swimmer, aren't you worried about sharks? Well, the answer is no. I mean, you're aware of them being a risk, but in all the years that I've been, I've been involved in ocean swimming, there has never been a serious issue when a shark has, has, uh, has been a threat. Hmm. Never. Never. I mean, there was one occasion up at, up at Bilgola, and, and uh, that's your home beach, or is it, or is yeah. it your family's home beach, yep. um, where they delayed the start uh, by about half an hour one year because there was a shark. Uh, the shark net was just near the final turning buoy, or the final turning buoy was just near the shark net, and there was a shark caught in the net. And there was another shark hanging around, and it was right near the final buoy. Yeah, well, and they tried to chase it out to sea, but the shark wouldn't go. So eventually they solved the problem by moving the turning boy 30 metres. Oh, well, and, and not telling everyone that there not was a shark anyone. just there. That's right. Yeah, it's probably, I'm probably spilling someone's guts here and I probably won't be all that grateful, you know. But, I mean, they're, they're all stories. It all makes up the, the rich tapestry of yeah, ocean swimming. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but as I say, I've, over all those years, no shark incident has ever been a serious threat to an ocean swim. It's interesting that, you know, and I don't know whether it's because of the crowds or because generally what you also do come to realise over the years is that of all the sharks around, there are times and places in, times and places when you wouldn't swim. Mm. For example, I would not swim in Sydney Harbour early in the morning or late in the evening, jam-packed full of bull sharks. And I've got to say, why there haven't been more incidents down at places like Balmoral where swimmers swim all year round very early in the morning, even in the dark, why there haven't been more incidents at places like that is beyond me. Um, but the point is, you know when and when not to swim, uh, the places, the times, and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, sharks are not that much of a, of a threat. There are only a couple of species. I'm not a shark expert, but this is, this is what I've, I've picked up over the years. There are really only about three species that could really be a threat. They're whites, which are basically out at sea, and they mm -hmm. can be anywhere, and they really are un unpredictable. Um, tigers, I'm told, but tigers are generally in the warmer waters up, up north. Uh, generally, and uh, and as I understand it, they're attracted by by distressed prey, um, not by people who aren't distressed or not injured, um, and also also bulls, and that's the reason why you wouldn't swim in the harbour. Bulls love estuarine water and water that's not, that's uh, rather murky, um, and so they they can be very dangerous as well. But there are times when when even all those sharks, if they're well fed, they're not a threat to anyone. Mm. We've just come back from from um, French Polynesia, and and it's crawling with sharks there, and. Uh, but you know, we didn't see anything untoward, and we're told that we're told by people who were there all the time and run run trips up there all the time that they're not that interested because they're so well fed. Uh, and, and you hear, I've heard other stories about you know wartime wartime incidents where ships have been torpedoed and mm. and two hundred people have been attacked by sharks. You know, well, you know, distressed prey again, and they're oceanic white tips or something like that, oceanic whalers, which can be pretty aggressive too. But but they're out in the ocean. But, but by and large, you realise after a while that sharks aren't, aren't that much of a problem, um, or need not be that much need of a problem. But you fun. develop a sense about it, uh, and you develop a sense about, um, about, about seas, about surf, um, and, and you know, it's just the way, the way you learn how to handle these conditions.
from French Polynesia is a nice segue into the other half of your business world, which is Ocean Swim Safaris. Where did that come from? Well, it, it, um, um, early on in, um, in running OceanSwims.com, uh, I was contacted by an organiser based in Fiji who wanted to run a swim in Fiji and one in Vanuatu and was looking for our help in promoting it. And we worked with this organiser for a while, and, uh, and out of that I realised that people, the sort of people who do Asian swimming, uh, are actually well-placed to travel for their swimming and, and want to travel for their swimming. They want to visit exotic locations in pursuit of their, of their sport, of their uh, pastime. And they, they're well-placed to do it for a number of reasons. One is they're generally well-resourced. Well um, generally, as I say, because they're basically 40s, 50s and 60s and so on, their kids are a bit older and so their windows have started to open again. They have the opportunity to. And I, I came to realise that there was an opportunity there and also also there was a bit of a demand um, for people who wanted to travel to, to ocean swim. And the bottom line is anywhere you go in the world, if there's water, you can swim mm. pretty well. And, uh, and so we started seeking out other locations as well. Opportunities would come along. We started going to Vanuatu in the first place, and then we started going to Fiji as well. And once we started going to Fiji, uh, where the swim there on Mana Island has been going since 2005, I think, or 2004. Four. 2004. Uh, when we went to Mana Island, uh, the organiser we've been working with said, why don't you come up with us to the Asawa, which is an island chain, a very remote island chain up north. You can see it on the horizon, you know, to the north of Manor Island. So we started going up there. What a beautiful place that is. That's where yeah. they filmed the movie The Blue Lagoon. Oh, yeah. And that's where we go, The Blue Lagoon. That's where our swimming is, 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 uh, is mainly based. And so it just spread from there. And we started looking for other opportunities, other places that would be good. And I'd heard about swimming with whales in Tonga some years ago. Um, and so eventually we started going there too. And, uh, and uh, a friend of ours, we rely on tips from people who know these things too. Friends of ours who are swimmers but also divers told us about a place in Sulawesi in Indonesia. They said it'd be right up, right up your alley, just what you need. <clears throat> so we went and did a, a scout on that. We went and did a scout on that and uh, it turned out to be fantastic. And so we run trips to Sulawesi. Um, uh, next in June next month, we're running our first trip to the Philippines. Again, it came from a tip from a friend who's a swimmer who said, this place sounds pretty good. We went up and checked it out. It is absolutely fantastic, you know. Um, we also run trips uh, some years ago. Now, Sue Ann and I visited her daughter, who was at a ballet school in Germany. And Sue Ann had never been to Europe before, and so we did a bit of a grand tour around Europe. And one of the things I'd always wanted to do was visit um, um, the town where the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was filmed. Oh, yeah. A place called Beaulieu Sumer. In, uh, on the Riviera between Nice and Monte Carlo. So we went there and we found out what a lovely place this is to swim as well. So after a couple of years, um, we started running a trip along the French Riviera. And then I'd always been, uh, I forget how it came about, but a, a, a contact in Holland, Nick, who used to run a website called openwaterswimming.eu. And uh, this website was, was literally just a calendar. And at one stage, Nick had something like 1,800 swims around Europe on this website. Wow. So Nick put us on to some people, um, some people in Barcelona, a young couple who were getting a bit of a business like this going as well. We made contact with them, and out of that came our Costa Brava Asian Swim Safari. Looking around the place, I'd, I'd heard a lot of good reports about San Sebastian. We went to check it out, and out of that came our San Sebastian Asian Swim Safari. Similarly, I'd always, I'd long looked at a, from afar at French Polynesia. Now, us Anglo types in Australia and New Zealand. We don't think that much about the French colonies in the Pacific, you see, because they're Franco, we're Anglo. 
Um, but it struck me there must be plenty of great places to swim there. But we generally been put off as well, I think, because because um, um, French Polynesia has notoriously been more expensive. But what I started here in the last couple of years was that it's not that much more expensive. And in mm. fact, and, and so we thought we'd go and check it out. Well, we had our first trip there this year, and, and it was a fantastic location for it. And uh, we're going to build that one up next year with some new locations as well. And it, it is really is mind-blowing stuff. But whatever people want to come away to places like this, we'll keep doing it. Have you ever been tempted to go very north Europe and swim in the cold waters of Finland or ice swimming? Or... I mean, I'd like to go and visit those places, but they don't attract me for a couple of reasons. The key reason is that is that I think people who want to go swimming aren't that keen uh, aren't that keen to swim in places where they're not comfortable, and cold water makes people uncomfortable. Mm. And and I don't. I mean, I can swim in coldish water. I, I don't like wearing wetsuits, and I rarely wear a wetsuit. I've only ever worn one in the water once in my life. I, I'm, but I'm. I've got my wetty built in, you see. <coughs> so I don't need one the same way that other people do. But I just don't find any great attraction. I'm not attracted to swimming in cold water. Okay. And so I'd much rather swim in, in places where the water is warm, the temperature is warm. Um, and we also build in other things to our trips, like culture, food, things like that. There's so much, so much, in, especially in Europe, where you know so many opportunities to add stuff yeah, like that yeah. in to make the trip multi-dimensional. But no, no, it's uh, and the other thing is a lot of those places as well. The water's not very clear. We seek we seek really clear water. We seek nice reef, nice clear water, um, and all the other cultural and foodie type things yeah. and historical things that go with it. Yeah. And so, where do you see OceanSwims.com going? Even in my short, you know, experience of ocean swimming, the, the website's changed and you do different things. What are you, what are you looking, looking at next? You're always looking for new things to do. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm sure someone who's a better business manager could do a lot more with it than I've been able to do with it. Um, my, my ideas generally come from the point of view of being a journo. Um, I started writing reports early on that started to build up the community. I started doing other things as well. Um, I get great help from a few people. A friend of ours, Colin Rayburn, for example, assembles our tallies for us where we actually count up all the distance. Every swimmer in Australia and New Zealand, we count up or take, keep a tally of all the swims they do, all the distances they do and so on. People seem to like that. That was something we did. We try and do something a That's bit great. new each year. Um, what I've realised in the last couple of years as well is how important our newsletter has become. Uh, we send that each week to 37,000 people. Um, really? And uh, wow! It's it's and when you consider the sort of market it is as well, the the sport it is, the demographics of it, you know, it's actually, it's actually a very a very useful and very effective means of communication. Um, so and we do that weekly. I need to smile nicely at you to put the podcast in there for me. <laughs> well, if it's about the right subject. <laughs> this one. Happy to put it in. It's about you, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I should give it a give it a push on this one without having heard it first. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Well, you are a journo, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, um, but anyway, um, but, you know, we've got a fine record of supporting Swim Recap. And, uh, and mm. we have mentioned the podcast a few times. Yeah. But sometimes you put podcasts out and you haven't told me. I only learn about them after the fact. So there's responsibility on you too, Mark. Okay, yes, fair enough. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> so where is it going to go in future? Um, you wonder how far the sport can grow. I, can, I don't see any any ceiling in sight. Um, the wonderful thing about it is, is that it's such an egalitarian sport. Um, the other thing that I really don't like are things like wetties and, uh, and other expensive fast skins and things mm -hmm. like that. 
for a while there I worked with a few organisers um, to try and encourage a culture of swimming only in budgies. And uh, the reason for that is that it is an enormously egalitarian sport and there is a very, very low entry cost. Really all you need is a pair of cozies and a pair of goggles. And some people swim without goggles. Look at, look at, uh, at uh, John, um, John, John, John Kelso, who was, uh, who was 89 this coming season, um, still swims without goggles and beats most of the kids. You know, so goggles themselves are not a be all and end all. So what see, he, but you know, well, he gets around the course and he gets around the course very, very quickly. You wow. know, he but, always notices me swim past and tells me how beautifully I'm swimming. Oh, the end. So, Such a gentleman. John was a diplomat. Right. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's true. Swan does swim beautifully. But um, but um, 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 uh, all he needs a pair of cozies and probably a pair of goggles, and so it costs you less than a hundred dollars to be part of this sport. And one of the key reasons why I don't like wetsuits is because if you start making wetsuits de rigueur as they have down in the southern states and in New Zealand, all of a sudden your entry entry cost to this sport goes from being under $100 to probably under $1,000 or $500 to $1,000. Mm. And, and very soon you're going to find yourself pressured to keep buying new wetsuits as, as technology changes and people keep getting new things like fast skins and so on. And all of a sudden, imagine if you're a family with two or three kids. You've got two kids yourself. When your kids get a bit older, I dare say, they'll start swimming. Maybe your wife will start swimming as well. Um, and all of a sudden, you're not just up for one wetsuit, you're up for four. Mm. Now, we know a family uh, had... How many how many kids did, did uh, Sean and Colette have? Five? Four, four, four kids. kids. They four all kids. Swam. They all swam. So you've got a family of six. And yeah. often, they'd all swim together. That's yeah, a right, terrific okay. thing. But yeah, imagine yeah. the cost of fitting everyone out with those higher cost wetties or faskins and things like that. So for that very reason, I, I've always been a bit of a purist with these things. I don't see, that said, I don't see a ceiling on it because it is such an easy sport to get into. Um, it's not a sport that's focused on winning. It's a sport that's focused on taking part. I dare say a lot of fun runs are like this as well. And if anything, you're competing with yourself for time over a distance. Yeah. difference between running and swimming in this sense, of course, is that is that you cannot compare your course over a swim from one year to another no, over the same course. Yeah. Because it depends on where the boys are set, depends on where, which way the swell's coming from, which way the wind is blowing, all sorts of things. Whereas if you're doing a run, you know, the street's going to be pretty much the pretty same. Pretty much the same, yeah. You know, each year. So it's very, very different. Um, and I think the other great thing about it is, is, that, is that you're really on the frontier. You know, it attracts the sort of people who have a bit of a, a, an ecological bent, an environmental bent to them, and uh, and uh, they can go out and be on the frontier, out past the shark net, anywhere past the shark net is the frontier, really. Mm. Um, and yet you're still within reach of a cuppa. Mm. Um, and we started to talk earlier on as well about the different dimensions of the sport, and you mentioned the long-distance swimming, and we talk about events, as we have um, at length here this afternoon. Uh, another part of it is the, is the uh, it's growing in popularity, is the really long distances. Um, they're a, they're a section amongst themselves. There's a bit of a crossover there, but um, but I think because that's such a personal pursuit, it requires a, it requires probably a different sort of personality mm. to be into it. But of course, the the great majority of this sport is is completely unstructured. It's all the mugs who turn up on every beach every morning and go swimming with their friends, mm. and then go up to the up to the top for a cup of coffee afterwards. And uh, that is one of the great, the, that is the great part of ocean swimming. Most of those people don't do events. They just turn up every morning and, uh, and do their swim, have their cuppa, and that's their therapy for the day. A lot of them yeah. are old fogies, old farts. A lot of them are much younger than that as well. But there is an enormous beauty to that. And uh, that's what I really love about it.
Yeah. Oh, it's great therapy. I, I, I think of it as, I don't know, an introverted event for an extrovert or an extroverted event for an introvert. Like, mm-hmm. I like being out there amongst people, but I'm also like by myself, right? I'm only mm. swimming by myself, in, enclosed in, in nature. Yeah, it's a paradox, isn't it? That, that it is something that you do with a whole lot of people, but, but it's something you do yourself. Mm. And, and when you're swimming along, you, you, the way to swim a distance, of course, people say, how do you swim a distance? The way you swim a distance is to, is to slip into your rhythm, slip into your own little world. And you think of all sorts of things. You might sing to yourself, you know. Mm. Mm. You might solve all the problems you're facing at work. But it, it's a great opportunity to not be bothered and, and to, to once you've settled into your rhythm and settled into your own little world, it's amazing how fertile your mind becomes. And it also helps to take your mind off the fact that you might be finding it difficult or you might be getting tired. Yep. The great thing about, about the older people doing swimming as well is that older people are much better at, at, at knowing what sort of pace they can sustain over a distance. Their judgment's there. Yep. I mean, how many people do you speak to? You know, Suanne's always telling these sorts of stories where you find yourself swimming behind a young person who goes a million miles an hour then suddenly stops. Yep. And then they'll go a million miles an hour again, then, that, then they'll suddenly stop again. They cannot judge pace. Um, and, uh, but, but us older people, we're able to do that a little bit better, and so we're more comfortable at it. And so do you have any swims on your bucket list that you haven't done? Have you done every swim in Australia? <laughs> By no means. <laughs> every Not swim at all. in New South Wales? Not at all. Not at all. There are a few swims that I haven't done that I would love to do. Um, I'd love to swim. Over Easter, there are a couple of swims down in the southwest of Western Australia, Albany and Denmark. I'd love to do that Denmark swim. There are a couple of other swims I'd like to do. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think. Trying to think. There, was, there were one or two in particular that I would really, really love to do. There was a new really long one this year from Palm to somewhere. Yeah, that's yeah, that's Palm to Shelley. Palm to Shelley, uh, yeah. And there are more coming from that direction as well. It's really quite interesting. I'm not in a position to say what they are at the moment. You know, it's not my information to give out right now. Sure. But there is more coming from that direction. And that, that's in line with what you were saying earlier on about there being a bit of a trend towards longer distances. By, by definition, those longer distances attract fewer swimmers. Um, but there'll be some high-profile events around in the planning stages now, like that. But, um, but uh, Palm to Shelley, that's right, was run a few weeks ago. Of course, the first person to swim that, in my knowledge, was James Pittard, who's blind. Mm. And he swam it in about 2003. Um, and we were up at, uh, we were up at, uh, got at Terrigal that day, and there, was, there used to be a swim run early in the season every year by the Gosford Swimming Club, or was it Woi Woi Swimming Club, or someone like that. And, uh, and on this particular day, James swam from, uh, yeah, yeah, most of, some of you will know James, he's blind. And it, James has actually done a major swim on every continent. He swam Robert Island into, into Cape Town, for example. He swam the Muscogee Channel between Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, I think it was, in, off, uh, off Massachusetts. He swam into, into or near Gallipoli, for example. He's done major swims on every continent. And, Cook Strait uh, and the English Channel. Cook Strait, English Channel. He, quite wow. a phenomenal bloke. And, uh, and James swims with a paddler as a, as a rule, and the paddler is instructed that if he's going too far to the right, there's, I think it's one, one whistle to go left, two whistles to go right, three for shark. 
He says he's never <laughs> heard the three. for shark. He's yeah. never heard the, heard the three. So he's not tethered. He's not tethered. No, 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 not, no. He's just doing it all himself. Mind you, I've swum, I've swum next to him in the pool at the uh, Sydney Football Stadium once. Sue Ann swam next to him as well. And what you learn is do not get anywhere near his left arm. Right <laughs> his right arm. His right arm. It's like a scud missile. It would take you out. <laughs> I've swum as his escort. And I don't know whether that... I learned the hard way. You learned the hard way. And I, I don't know whether that comes from... He's swimming at the football stadium. His arm feels for where the wall is or something yeah, like right. that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It, it never gets more than about an inch above the water surface. But, uh, okay. but he gets there, does James. Anyway, James did Palm Beach to North Stain uh, on this day in 2003. There'd been a thunderstorm that day. And unusually for a th- day with a thunderstorm, the sea and the winds were coming from the north. And so it pushed James down the coast far more quickly than he'd planned to get down there. And he actually arrived at North Stain uh, something like two hours ahead of time. Problem <laughs> with right. that was that he was to be met officially by the Governor of New South Wales, uh, Mary Bashir. Well, because he was so early, he was well before Mary Bashir turned up. And so they got him and took him into a cafe, gave him a cuppa and so on. And then a bit had later breakfast. they drove him back around and had what? <laughs> he had breakfast. He had breakfast. Then they drove him back around to Freshwater, put him in a ducky and dumped him back out to sea and he had to finish again. Come back in again. <laughs> <laughs> so so he's, a, he's a phenomenal bloke, James, you know, when you consider that, you know, as I say, he's blind. But... Um, um, I've seen him down at Malabar, haven't I? Yes. Yeah, yeah yes, quite possibly. Does yeah, Malabar. James does. James does the Rainbow Club swim. Yeah, that's right. Well, the Rainbow Club also were on them. They gave you an award the other year for, you know, Ocean Swimmer Legend of the Year or, or something. It wasn't they, called that. It was something like that. Had a trophy, remember? Two. You got it. Oh goodness me! <laughs> <laughs> I've given it the wrong name. No. But it was something like that. Did I? Oh, gee. It's, it's, it's interesting, that swim, that swim is one of two swims on the calendar around, around uh, Sydney, um, run by, run by organisations which are charities or in support of charities, but which don't have um, the natural or the, the inbuilt logistic, logistical support of having a whole lot of surf life savers supporting them. So uh, both, both uh, the Rainbow Club, they rely on a lot of support from the Eastern Suburbs Clubs, especially North Bondi, and over on the north side, Balmoral Beach Club run the Swim for Cancer, which has turned into a phenomenal Massive event Massive this year, yeah. Well, they make hundreds of thousands of dollars out of, out, of it, out of it each year, but they also do not have a ready supply of lifesavers. They've got to buy in their, uh, their water safety. And they're, they're, it's interesting as well, both of them appeal to, to their own communities as mm. well as to the regular, regular ocean swimming community. So they pull in, pull in a lot of swimmers who don't normally swim as well. It's uh, they're quite phenomenal events, those ones. The people who organise those really deserve really deserve awards. Yeah, well, Balmoral extended. They've got the extra swim now. The well, that's right. They've got the five. And, it was uh, very political this year. There was, a, well, there was at least one ocean swimming local candidate for the election swimming down there. Uh-huh. And plenty of supporters of the other one. So, yeah. <laughs> people get out of the water and they... So many times people say, I beat Tony Abbott. Well, I, I, I don't know of anyone who's been beaten by Tony Abbott. <laughs> But I'll say this for Tony Abbott, um, uh, that, that Tony turns up at swims outside of his electorate and he turns up at times other than when he's running an election campaign. He must love the stuff. He must enjoy doing it, you know, so I'll say that for him. That's surprising in New South Wales we don't have a tradition of more politicians who are swimmers. Down in Victoria there's a much stronger pol- uh, tradition the well, at one stage, both yeah. the Premier and the Opposition Leader were, were ocean swimmers, Ted Badiou and Steve Frax. That's it, yeah. They were both, both uh, established ocean swimmers, and there are a lot more other, other politicians down there who are swimmers too. Why don't we have more in New South Wales? Bruce Baird, I can think of. Bruce Baird. Tony Abbott, you know, there aren't many others, certainly not who are regulars. I think Lee Rhiannon did, um, uh, what's the Shelley to Manley's 
Okay, yeah. Bold and Beautiful. Okay, yeah. And yeah, and yeah. the only other one I could think of, because I was thinking of this on the way here, was Matt Thistlethwaite, who's the yeah, local yeah, member Matt out Matt Thistlethwaite out, out, out uh, Maroubra Way, that's right, he swims. But he's part of a, uh, when I say but, it's not to say this discounts it at all, He's part of a squad that swim at uh, at uh, Heffron Park at the at the Des Renford Centre at Heffron Park too. Right. Um, oh, he must be quite fit. He ran a marathon the other year in three he? hours or something ridiculous. Okay. So. I remember when he when he was a, a young labour firebrand uh, in his teens. I think it was late teens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seems so long ago. But uh, but yeah. But but we don't have a strong tradition of pollies doing it here. It, anyway. may, it may change. If it's getting more popular, they'll, they'll want to be seen there. I mean, oh, politicians see. do the city to surf every year. You know, they pop into that. I know. remember Malcolm Turnbull, who used to uh, be the local member. Well, they do come and open them, that's true. I've they come them. and open them, that's right. Malcolm I'd never seen in the water, but uh, Adam Wilson, again, who when he was running the Sydney Harbour Swim, would get Malcolm along to uh, to be the official starter at the Sydney Harbour Swim by the Opera House. Yeah. And this was before Malcolm was, not only before he was Prime Minister, but before... Before, well, he was still on the back bench, and and, um, and he used to cut a lonely figure there by mm. himself. And you, and you look at the bloke, you look at some people from afar, and you think, and you think he needs someone to talk to. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he'd sort of wander around a bit. I remember the first day, I the first day they had uh, the first time they had the Coogee swim. I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, and uh, there was a really strong westerly wind blowing on a November day. It was unusual. And uh, I arrived down there very early, and the only other person on the beach was Ernie Page, who was at that stage the member for Waverley. But Ernie turned up at everything. Right. Very good local member was Ernie, former mayor of Waverley, but uh, he turned up at everything. But it was only Ernie and me on the beach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ernie wasn't swimming, though, I have to say. <laughs> I was. Uh, I couldn't think of a good segue to this, but I was just trying to think of amusing Paul Ellicamp stories, and you were in Neighbours once. No, I wasn't With in neighbours. No, I was in a country practice. A country practice, was it? Okay. In a country practice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in one of my earlier iterations, I was a press secretary, and I was, for a while I was press secretary to Bob Hawke when he was Prime Minister. And there was a storyline in a country practice, and a country practice, I've never seen a country practice. I've never seen neighbours either, I might say. Oh, well, but, uh, it's on in a little while. You... <laughs> damn, damn, I've just missed it. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'd never seen a country practice, but Hawke was invited to take to, to become part of a storyline of a country practice, which was to do, it's about the time in the, in the mid-80s when, there were, when the nuclear disarmament party and, and, uh, um, was, uh, was uh, um, very prominent, and the whole issue of nuclear disarmament was a very, very prominent issue. And the storyline was to do with kids at the school in a country practice, um, organising petitions and so on to push the government to actually do more on nuclear disarmament. And the storyline had, had one of the students, you know, wrote to Hawke and everyone said, oh, silly, he's not going to respond. Yeah. And they had a big rally. And uh, it was all filmed on Hawkesbury Racecourse out near Richmond. And, uh, and they were at this rally and all of a sudden, so the storyline goes, all of a sudden this limousine turns up and out gets Hawke. This is how the script went. Yeah. Anyway, they wrote to Bob and asked whether he'd do it, and he did. And uh, we flew up from Canberra that morning, and they sent Bob the script that they wanted him to say. And uh, he didn't see it until he got on the plane. It was a half-hour flight from, from RAF Fairbairn to RAF Richmond. And uh, he looked at it on the plane, and he got off the plane, and he got into the car, and we drove to Richmond Racecourse. Bob was in the front, I was in the back, the coppers were in the car behind, we got out of the cars at the race course, the whole crowd's there, and they're supposed to all be surprised when Hawke actually turns up. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the whole crowd's there, and it was like the parting of the Red Sea, the crowd breaks in half, and Hawke strides through the middle, 
and uh, and I was behind him because that's what a press secretary does. Yeah. And uh, I was straight behind him, and the coppers were next to me, and so on. So you know, I didn't know I was going to be part of it. But there you go, I was there. That's a touch of authenticity, I suppose. So that's how I got on a country practice. The interesting thing that happened was one of the one of the characters, that little bloke with a moustache, who's the... I mean, all these shows have a comic foil. The, the, the cook. The cook, cookie yep. or whatever cookie. it was, you know. Oh, it was Cookie the big guy. But yes, no, no, they, they, they whoever were... Whoever was, one of the little little comic foil blokes was yep. supposed to, according to the script, had to run up to Hawk as he came through the pack to grab his hand and greet him and all that sort of stuff. Well, no one had told the coppers. So, <laughs> so when this bloke runs up to Hawk from the side... Un- unannounced, uh, the copper elbows him out of the way. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> because he thought he was being attacked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a country practice. A photo of that came to light recently on Twitter or Facebook. This is or what somewhere. I saw it. Yeah. yeah, and someone said, "Who's that character behind?" Well, you do look a bit like the plain clothes. Heavy, number of people you know? have said. To yeah, me, the... <laughs> number of people have said to me. In fact, I well remember the day that we won the America's Cup. Because uh, a lot of people will remember Hawk in that ridiculous jacket at the Royal Perth Yacht Club. Yep. Well, I was there then, but I was in those days I was a journo, and we all walked in there, and we hadn't been there all night, so we weren't drunk. And we were staying at a hotel in the city, and, and we all got up you know, while the race, when the race was about half an hour from the finish. We saw the finish, saw that they'd won, and then we all got in the car because Hawk was in, had been invited out of the Yacht Club. We all go out there. And... Uh, and uh, and we're all sober, and when we got out there, you know, champagne was hanging like stalactites from the ceiling. You know, talk about a party. You've never been to a party like this. But we're all sober. So we're walking through the crowd out there, and a woman came up to me and said, have you got a gun? <laughs> she uh... thought I was a copper. <laughs> Probably because I had a short hair in those days. Well, yeah. I have no hair now. But... <laughs> Actually, I do have hair, but I, but I choose to have it. Uh... You choose. Well, that's good, as you made a choice. Rather paying a barber every week, but... <laughs> that last little bit didn't have anything to do with ocean swimming. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> I guess that's all uh, part of the tapestry of life. It's all part of the rich tapestry of life. America's Cup's very nautical, you know. It's maritime. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> they were heady days, heady days, and uh, you know, I've never been to a in an environment like that. Well, you no, know, I, n- I never have. I never have. You know, people were just so use the expression gay abandon, you know, yeah. and, and it really was, you know, people were just falling over themselves in a party atmosphere. They were delirious. Yep. Most of them were absolutely, absolutely off their faces. Oh, I imagine. <laughs> except except for Hawkey and uh, and uh, the people, the journos who turned up with him and the coppers who turned up with him at 4am at the Royal <laughs> Perth Yacht Club. I, yeah, I don't think we'll see, I don't think, we're not going to see Prime Ministers in that uh, in that way anymore, are we? They're much Those more controlled. In much more practice. And... Much more controlled these days. Um, um, what I should have said, what I meant to say about Hawk in a country practice as well. He gets out of the car. He's only looked at the script in the plane on the way from Canberra to Richmond. Gets out of the car, walks for the crowd, has to get up on days and deliver a speech off the cuff. Hmm. He did it all in one take. Yeah, right. Okay. All in one take, and it was perfect. And yet, one of the producers was telling us that one of the key actors there had done up some other scene with one line. And they did 30-odd takes for it. And yet, here's Bob gets out of the car. Now, I have to say this, I'm not Bob's greatest fan, you know, but this, he did brilliantly. Yeah. Out of the car, through the crowd, up into the dais, gives the speech all perfect, one take. Well, you asked about where ocean swimming is going. Mm. Who knows where it's going? But I think one of the beauties is that we don't know where it's going. Mm. You know, in New South Wales, there's a trend to, as you said yourself, some, some longer events. There's also a trend with a lot uh, with younger people coming in, um, and especially females, young mothers, doing the shorter events. 
it's interesting that the coal classic for some years now, the one has been one case from there has been much bigger than the two. And indeed, as the two has been dropping in numbers over the years, the one has actually continued to grow. Mm. Uh, and that's an example of, of, uh, of what I'm talking about. That's where the real growth is in the sport in New South Wales. It's at that shorter distance end. And, um, and uh, I remember when um, the big swim started running, the little big swim, a one-k mm. swim at Palm Beach before the main swim started. And the first time they, they did that swim, they started all these, and one of the reasons they do it is because it's a it's a Cantu gold swim, and one of the and, and the first time they did this swim, there was a bit of a wave on, and they started them up the beach, and they started them into a heavy set dumping on a shallow bank. Oh right, and in, you the, in felt their debut these, short swim. In their debut short swim, you just felt for these people. Mm. Over the years, they've actually moved the start down the beach towards Kitty's Corner, so it's a little bit easier for them. Yeah. Um, but where's where's the sport going? In a sense. In a sense, you know, we don't know. Uh, it will continue to grow. Um, it's very hard for new events to get into the calendar now because there are so many, certainly in New South Wales, that are already filling the calendar. Um, it doesn't mean we can't have more events. You know, if more events would go on a Saturday, for example, there's room there. Um, and uh, and uh, and there's and you could also extend the season somewhat. Um, and people oh, are starting to realise right now. Well, people yeah. are starting to realise. I've been saying this for years. The best time of year to swim is this time of year, autumn and early winter, because the water is still warm. You might get cooler air, but you, you're also there's a big chance you're going to get a gentle offshore breeze and clear skies and very clear water. And, and the also, water is still warm. Yeah, and you're not frying yourself on the beach. You're not frying yourself on the beach. It is by far the best time of year. Yeah, I've long said as well that there there are two iterations each year of the Coogee swim, the Wedding Cake Island swim by far the better chance is, is in April mm. because you have a chance of getting that gentle offshore breeze and we had that this year early in the morning. The wind changed you know, as the day yeah. went on um, but the water was still lovely and it was interesting out behind the island that day there was a bit of a stiff southeaster blowing and the swell was coming from that, from that direction too and once you got behind the island and you turned the first buoy behind the island and went towards the second buoy behind the island you were right into it mm. and it was actually, actually quite difficult for a lot of people, you know. But it's interesting, one of the things we haven't talked about is stroke and technique and things like that. Yep. And while I'm no, I'm no authority on this, I'm no, I'm no uh, you know, beacon of wisdom or anything like that, fond of, fond of wisdom or oracle, um, there are things you do which, which, um, which will make these sorts of things easier. For example, in those sorts of conditions, going, going into that short, sharp chop that's right into your face, you need to maintain, maintain your street line, you need to maintain your run. And you do that by lengthening the stroke out. That is a time in which you can lengthen the stroke out. Interestingly, after that, after turning that boy and heading back in towards Wiley's and then back into the beach, you then started to feel the swell coming from behind you. Mm. Now, if you've got a bit of experience to you, you can feel that swell come through from your toes, runs through your body, and you, it, you'll, again, you lengthen your stroke out a bit, maintain the streamline and leave the arm out there, and it will pick you up and rush you forward. Yep. The most beautiful feeling. Yeah, You've felt that, surely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I remember that, that day I was doing Avalon and it was like two different days. The swim from Newport to Avalon was just beautiful. The second swim was like swimming in a washing machine. It was just, it was one of the, yeah. it was probably the most difficult swim I did this, this year. So Newport yeah. to Avalon was good, but at Avalon yep. itself it wasn't so good. Uh, well, at Avalon was fine for the first little bit and yeah. they ran the, and then they ran the 1K swim and it and was what, fine. And the wind but, turned? But then the wind turned just as the 1.5 was starting. It was the same day as Coogee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. at about 10 o'clock or whenever that because was. Because one of the best feelings I've ever had um, in that sense of the swell coming from behind and picking you up and rushing you forward and so on was Avalon one day. Mm. And, and probably about probably about what, 10 or 12 years ago. 
and it was a northeast swell, and it was the most beautiful day. You know, there's only a gentle breeze blowing. It was probably a nor'easter, but it was only gentle. Mm. And um, and uh, from that far out boy, because the other great thing about the Avalon swim, the traditional Avalon swim, is you start in that run out at the northern end of the beach, yep. and that is the most exhilarating start of any swim you could do. Yep. You know, because that run out just rushes you over the weedy rocks. You know, the weed tickles your belly <laughs> as you go out. You know. And it's a beautiful feeling. Then you turn the buoy off the headland, then head south towards uh, towards uh, the southern headland at Avalon, but it's not straight down the coast, it's on an angle in. Mm. And so if the swell's running that way that day, it pushes you all the way. Yeah. That's where Swan first had an ocean swim. That was my first ocean yeah. swim. And tell us yeah, about right. that first ocean swim. It was educational for you. <clears throat> well, I'd never really swum up out behind the break before, so that was a bit of a revelation. I thought, oh, this is very nice. I'm enjoying this. Then I did notice a lane, what I thought was a lane rope on the bottom, or attached to the bottom. And I thought, oh, they've gone to a lot of trouble. <laughs> this, 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 is, this is very nice to, to yeah. do, you know. And it was a clear line between two boys. So I thought, oh, well, they must have put I'll this there yeah. to follow. Then it suddenly dawned on me after about mm, three or 400 metres, I'm a bit slow, this wasn't to follow this was actually the shark this net. was the shark net <laughs> i did notice it had a few barnacles and things growing on it and so i quickly switched from one meter on the seaward side to one meter on the shoreward side <laughs> of it because i thought that would be a lot safer even though there was a clear you know two or three <laughs> meter gap but anyway that was my very first ocean swim and as soon as i got out it was a clear day perfect conditions i was addicted yeah I, that was that was it for me how many have you done now I've lost count. Yeah. Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. And that was in 2001, I think. Yeah. So when, you do, when you do 20, 30 or 40 swims a year, and we've been doing them now for, for 20 years, well, multiply the two, multiply, even be conservative, multiply 30 by 20, mm. 600 mm. swims. Mm. Is that what it is? 600? Yeah, yeah. 6,000, it feels like 6,000. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, in the early days, I used to go in. If they had a swim on, I felt obliged to, to go in it. I don't do that now. I, I do, you know, not swim in everything. But yep. I can remember swimming in every available swim in a season. So how many times have you placed in... You, like you must have know. a bathroom. I haven't been to your bathroom. I go in there; it's all branded with <laughs> surf life saving no, no, clubs. No. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I don't display anything. I no. It'd be easy to times. ask. Be easy to ask. How many has she not placed in? Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, no. But you, you asked before about about bucket list swims as well. I mean, there's there there are swims um, that I wouldn't call bucket list because I have done them, but but I just find them very special every year. And one of the key ones of that is uh, like that is the Transfrontera swim. One of the swims we do on our Costa Brava Ocean Swim Safari, the first swim we do on those trips is from France to Spain around the end of the Pyrenees. Wow. And uh, it's just over three kilometres. Um, the water is glorious but you literally are around the end of the Pyrenees. It's where the Pyrenees run into the Mediterranean. And, uh, and you start in Sabere, which is a town on the French side of the border. Mm. You finish in a town called Porbo, which is on the Spanish side of the border, and they're like mirror image towns at the end of deep, uh, long bays. And it is the most beautiful swim, most spectacular swim. And at one stage there, as you're going around, going around there's a, uh, the, at the end of the Pyrenees, there's a high cliff above you. It must be hundreds of feet high. And at the very top, 
you can see this little structure, and that's the border. That's as you cross from France to Spain. That's awesome. Or Spain to France, depending on which way the wind's blowing. So before the EU, did you have to carry your passport with you? In theory, I suppose you would. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you would. But uh, this, the swim, the, we first did that in 2012, I think it was. It was a race. It was a, well, no, it wasn't it a race. Wasn't that a was race. the interesting yeah. thing. They had about event. 400 people doing it. It was an event. Halfway around, they had a latte pontoon. Oh, lovely. Moored off the border, moored in line with the border. Well, that's very European. Well, it wasn't, it? Actually, it wasn't yeah. lattes. They were handing out oranges and, and drinks. Juice. Yeah. Juice yeah. and water and things like that. And, um, and uh, um, uh, They were most insistent that you had something to eat and to drink, and they, they tried to be sure that everybody had something because I, I think they thought you couldn't finish unless you... You, right. You, okay. You know, had some nutrition. Good. But it was Looking interesting when you, you got into the beach in at, at Porbo and they had a big inflatable finishing arch on there, and they had a bloke on the microphone who was calling everyone by name as they came out of the water. Oh, we got a big nice. rap because we were the Australians. Yeah. And it, it gives them all a hug and everything like that. Then ushers you through the finishing arch, and you get through the finishing arch. There's nothing there. Because right. it wasn't okay. a race. Yeah. There's yeah. no timing or anything like that. It was just all the hoo-ha and the, cel- and the celebratory yep. atmosphere. It was fantastic. Yeah. So we do that swim now. They've changed the date of the formal swim now. And so it's at a time when we can't do it. So we just do it anyway. And that's the first swim of our Costa Brava Ocean Swim Safari. So when you talk about bucket lists, that's something I'll never get tired of doing. Yeah, yeah. That swim. Have you, isn't there a swim between Europe and Asia? Like you could swim. Yes, there to is. There Turkey are a couple. There are a couple actually, because there's um, there's the Dardanelles swim um, run on at the I think it's August 31 every year. That goes from the Gallipoli Peninsula across to Canapoli. Um but there's also a swim across across the uh, the uh, um, the harbour the harbour in in Istanbul. It goes from the, the European side to the Asian side. And on both those swims, the current is so strong in one direction all the time because it's running down from the Black Sea through right. the Bosphorus out, out into the Mediterranean. And uh, the, it's all one way the whole time, you see. And, uh, and uh, it's very easy to overshoot the mark. See, the hardest thing about those swims is actually uh, controlling your, your direction so that you're on the other side and you don't get swept past the finish. Because if you do, you'll be picked up by someone else farther down. I've heard that about the swim in... Uh... Uh, the Alcatraz swim, yes, yeah, is like that. Same. Really. I did Alcatraz one year, and uh, uh, it was on Labor Day, the American Labor Day uh, weekend, uh, on on Labor Day itself. And it was an informal group, and it was a wedding anniversary. It was a couple of ladies who'd been married the year before, and they their mar- their wedding had been to do this Alcatraz swim, and this was their first anniversary. And I was lucky enough to be included in the party for their first anniversary, and because uh, I, I knew the organizer, and. Uh, we got it on, on a day when we jumped. We jumped at about 6 a.m. Mm. Uh, off Alcatraz. You can't actually land at Alcatraz. You're not allowed to. You've got to come on. If you want to go onto Alcatraz, you've got to use the ferries and pay the visitor fee and all that sort of stuff. So you're not actually allowed to, to land on the island when you do these swims. You jump off, off the boat uh, out of the island and swim back. And this particular morning, there was not a cloud in the sky. There was not a breath of wind. Absolutely clear sky. Um, and because it was the end of summer, it was a beautiful temperature in, in the air and uh, not too hot and certainly not cool. The water was probably about 19, 18 or 19 okay. degrees. And, and it was right, you've really got to get that swim right at, the, right at the, the change of tide because the current becomes ferocious. Anyway, we got it right at the right time. We got in, it's about, uh, what, a mile and a half from Alcatraz into, uh, into uh, Aquatic Park, which is the finish. 
And we got there and the friend of mine who organised it said to me, how do you enjoy that? I told him how much I loved it. And he said, well, you got, got it on the best day of the year. Yeah. It was the most, one of the most perfect swims I'd ever done. Not perfect from the way I swam it, but just perfect but just for the conditions. the whole experience. Absolutely beautiful. And against that backdrop where that side you've got the Golden Gate Bridge and that side you've got the, the, the San Francisco skyline, goodness me. Yeah. Sometimes you get a swim that's just inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the swims off Sydney are pretty cool, but I don't think we've got anything quite like that, do we? Well, yeah, but I mean, they may say, they may say how they love doing Wedding Cake Island or yeah. Bondi Bronte going around McKenzie's Point or Little Head, Little Head at uh, Palm de Whale and so on. It's exotic, you see. That's exotic for us. This is exotic for them. Yeah. Around the Opera House is pretty nice. Yeah. If they yeah. run that again. Well, well <laughs> they'd, around the Opera House. I remember the time when we were doing the Opera House swim, the Sydney Harbour swim, and uh, in the, when they first ran it, they used to set a boy off Mrs. Macquarie's chair, another boy off Fort Denison, then you'd come back to Mrs. to uh, Man of War Steps. And it was in the early days when I was, I used to go out there with a camera and take photos, and I, I positioned myself off the boy off Fort Denison. And I was taking photos as people come around, all of a sudden I, I thought, hold on, that bit just there, I wasn't there before, that boy wasn't in that position before. Turns out the boy had come loose and had been caught <laughs> by the current, and before you knew it was out in the middle of the ferry lane. Nice. Well, the problem with that is all the swimmers go yeah, out there too. All the swimmers are going to follow it, yeah. <laughs> and before you knew it, half the peloton was in the middle of the ferry lane. And uh, I wasn't caught like that. I got back a little bit earlier and so on, you know, but eventually they brought the boy in, but the swimmers were still out there. Well, ever since then, that swim never went out to Fort Denison. It just yeah. went across to Mrs. Macquarie's chair and then around. around yeah, that's very much inside, isn't it? But yeah. that is one of these spectacular swims. You know, you get out there and you think, and, and you look in the, in the background, the way you're swimming, you've got the Opera House there, the Harbour Bridge there. And indeed, indeed the Dawn Fraser swim around Cockatoo yeah, Island, and you've got a nice. similar sensation when you're behind Cockatoo Island and you've got the bridge in the background. Yeah. We're very, very lucky to have these, these picturesque, dramatic yeah. uh, locations and backdrops here. But Sue Ann, you don't do Don Fraser, do you? Uh, yes, I you do. Oh, you I did, do. You do one you I, I, I did miss one, but it's probably. Well, I can't say it's my least favourite, but I'm very frightened of bull sharks. I grew up on the Parramatta River, and I used to, you know, get in my little rowboat and row yeah. around. And um, yeah, it's it's something I, I prefer to swim right next to somebody else. I'm nervous on my own in that swim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but in all the years I've been running it, there's never been an issue with sharks. No. The last time I jumped in the water there, um, uh, because they've got two distances and they've got to start them five minutes or so apart, you see, because they've only got a, a small window for the ferries at, at uh, uh, Cockatoo Island and so on. And, uh, and I took pictures at the start. I was in the water and before you knew it, both swims had gone and I was left behind and I thought, well, I'm not going to get photos of anyone if I take off now. So I looked at the boy across towards uh, Cockatoo Island. I thought, I'll go there and I'll meet them coming back. They'll only be 20 minutes, I thought. Mm. So I swim out there, and I think there will be boats around, right? I swim out to that boy just off, off Cockatoo Island, and I was in the water there for about 40 minutes before anyone turned up, and yeah, there was right. no water safety around me. I'm bob bobbing around it's in probably around one you. of those sharkiest parts of Sydney Harbour by myself <laughs> at 8 o'clock in the morning. I've never been so frightened in my life. I'll never do that again, I'll tell you. Nothing yeah, happened. No, nothing happened. I'm here. Hey, I'm here talking about it, but it was an experience. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I'd do that. Yeah, I, don't, I, I always get a little bit freaked out when I end up swimming by myself. Not so much because of sharks, just because of I'm by myself. Where is everybody? Have I gone the wrong way? 
even though you know you're not, you know where you're going. Uh, people have said to me. Happen. People have said to me as well. Uh, 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 sometimes they say, "Wouldn't it be great if all the swims, all the swims, had the same age groups and they're all standard conditions and things like that?" Uh, and there was a little bit of a segue from what you're saying, and I used to think, "Yeah, it probably would make things easier." And so on. And then I thought about it. One of the great beauties of this sport is that they've all got their own rules. Yeah. Of course, there is no central authority to ocean swimming. It is almost an anarchic sport. Um, and, and every swimmer has its own rules, every, which means every swimmer has its own personality. It's not just the course that makes these things up, it's how each organiser runs mm. it. And because there's no central, central authority, there are no central parameters, apart from the fact that everyone's got to be insured, and, uh, and there are no central rules. And uh, Triathlon, for example, is mired in rules, as, as any centrally controlled sport is. They're mired in rules. FINA-operated events, you know, I run a million miles before I'll, I'll say that we should have FINA rules involved in ocean swimming. The beauty is they've all got their own rules, they've all got their own standards, they've all got their own age groups. Goodness me, there are some swims that have 15-year age groups. Mm. I mm. mean, some people look at that and say, well, that's insane, but it's all part of the personality. No, that's good. Guy yeah. in France, a cockatoo island swim, 15-year well, age groups. They have 15-year age groups, yeah, and Bill Gola, Bill Gola used to as well. Yeah. They'd have 15-year age groups for some ages and 10-year age groups for other ages. I mean... I like the small ones. I've got half a chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the interesting things as well. You know, when we started having shorter swims in New South Wales, and the first one I did was Shark Island. Shark Island was one of the first events to have a short swim before the long swim. And I started doing that. And what I found was because the established swimmers, you know, generally wouldn't do the short swim because it was below, below them, mm. beneath them. Well, I, I placed a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Coogee, for example, had a, had a short swim before the long swim. I remember the first time I met John Curry, you know, Curry's an absolute legend in ocean swimming. First time I met him, I was swimming in the 1K at Coogee. And I was swimming out there, and I was going hard because I knew I had a bit of a show here because there were so few people in it, you see. And this bloke comes up next to me. He's not even trying. I think this bloke's not even trying. He gets next to me. He's going to leave me for dead. But as he gets next to me, he rolls over on his back and starts doing that straight. Good grief. So I put a bit of a spur in. I get a bit of a head in. And he rolls over onto his belly, catches up really easily. As soon as he gets next to me, rolls over and starts doing backstroke. And it was like this all the way around the course. And as I got to the break, coming back in, he said to me, don't worry, mate, I'm not racing. (laughs) And I got in. Then I met John Curry. And he said he thought I'd been another fellow called Dave Ross, who's a friend of his. And he thought he'd just swim the course with him, the 1K course, just to do a bit of a warm-up. Yeah. He wasn't competing, he wasn't edited. But I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but all yeah. I knew was that he came up to me so <laughs> easily, and, and had he not been rolling over and doing backstroke, I would have been miles behind him. Yeah. Now, yeah. that's a legend. That's someone you, who probably should talk to at some stage as well. Okay. One of the things, one of the things I would like to do, and I've never gotten around to it, is, 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 is go to different people you know, who have a particular backstory. Everyone has a story, by the way. Everyone yep. has a story that's worth listening to and worth telling. But pick some people with a particular, you know, backstory and talk to them. Yep. Not only about their swimming, but about who they are. Yeah. You know, and, and you would find that that, that, that we're a, an agglomeration of all sorts of different yeah, people. Yeah. But we're drawn together by the fact that, that you know, as I said before, there's, there's a, a touch of the, of the environmentalist, of the eco-warrior amongst us all. We all like being in the wild to some extent. We're all out, out on, on the frontier. Yep. As I say, being past the shark, shark net is, is the frontier. Um, but I defy you, there are two people I know, Barry Lang and Michael Christie. I defy you pointing at them in their cozies. Tell me which one's the doctor and which one's the truckie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've both got, they've both got zippers from, from um, heart bypass operations. Wow. Tell me which is which, you know, and you yep. can't. No, it's a good thing, isn't it? That's one of the things I love about it.
Unfortunately, that's all the time we had to chat, and I think I could have chatted all night. So thanks very much to Paul Ellicamp and Sue Ann Hunt for taking so much time out of their afternoon to chat about all things ocean swimming. If you'd like to read more about anything you heard in this podcast, including getting information on the music that was used, get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. That ukulele music you heard earlier, that was the music by Paul's son, James. And we've got links to all the music up on the website. Thanks again. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you next time on The Pod.